2: United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
3: Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show this is Mosty radio from prx i'm your host christopher kimball today i chat with alice waters the founder of shape and in berkeley california waters and i dig into her new memoir coming to my senses which details a remarkable life lived not just for food but also for beauty philosophy social change and simplicity
4: i think that when you Put a bouquet of flowers on the table in a school. Children just know something intuitively. They know that they're cared about.
3: Before we hear from Waters, it's my interview with Jarelle Guy. Guy's debut cookbook, Black Girl Baking, presents an eclectic mix of recipes from banana s'mores pizza to cookies inspired by her mom's childhood in Guam to vegan baked goods. Jarelle, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you. You were born in Lantana, Florida. Your father grew up in the South. Your mother was from Guam. Tell us about Lantana, Florida. What was the community like?
2: Well, I guess it was an interesting place. I, I, I would say it was lower class living. It was not the best living situation, but I feel like it gave me a lot of contrast to ask for a lot of great things.
3: Well, you you write that there was Jamaican, Cuban, Haitian food and culture, so the food must have been really great. Yeah, yeah.
2: definitely. There was a lot, of, a lot of wonderful, I mean, like, Jamaican beef patties, you know, cabbage and, and peas and rice. And then on my father's side, you know, like, things that my grandmother made, just really, really hearty, um, delicious. Southern food, you know, um, mac and cheese. Um, uh, she made this delicious spaghetti that had... I think she put ketchup in it, which sounds strange now, but it gave it this nice sweetness. Um, so it was definitely um, a, a wide range of, of flavors that I grew up around.
3: And, and you also write that you, when you were 14, you were overweight mm-hmm. and uh, and you became a vegan uh, as a result. And you, so you really changed your entire diet yeah. when you were a teenager, yeah, right?
2: I did. Um, I think a, a lot of it was me trying to find myself. A lot of it was me trying to find my identity within all of that.
3: So by becoming vegan, that set you apart from your family, your brothers and sisters who were still eating the traditional diet?
2: Right. It was it a was stark contrast. You know, like our dinners were very meat-centered and, you know, starch-heavy because a lot of it, too, you know, we're trying to feed a large family on a on a small budget, so... This whole concept of cooking from scratch was born because I had to be creative. I had to think of a new way to create this food that I loved and I wanted to taste, but that fit my diet.
3: Another thing you write about is negligence in the kitchen. That is waste. Could you explain that?
2: I'm talking about um, how I would watch the Food Network as a little girl and how I would see this huge contrast between a woman. A, white woman with money navigating her kitchen space versus what was reality for me. And I know what was reality probably for a lot of people, but even just the way that we approached our resources, you know, you don't have a lot of resources. And so when I would watch Ina Garden in particular, make these huge feasts for just her and her husband, and then she would leave <laughs> like excess food in the bowl. Um, when she was transferring over, like she would like mix a cake batter and then put some of the cake batter into a pan, but then there was always something at, left in the bowl, and I would just like go crazy looking at that, thinking, <laughs> well, "What? Like, who eats that? Like, what? Well, I, I don't know. I just didn't. I didn't process in my mind, and it made me just." feel very um like there were just two different worlds (laughs) you know like like i as much as i was angry at her like i was curious about what kind of world is that (laughs) that she could live in and not feel like this like somebody's pulling out your stomach like it just felt like such a wrong thing to do i don't know like you were leaving someone hungry
3: um you did a really cool thing on canning food scraps uh just talk about that if you would for a second
2: um, I did a fun sponsorship project with Morton Salt, and they asked us to talk about what food waste means to us. And so, I don't know, I just got really inspired because I was going through this period where I was just very overwhelmed with work. I was very overwhelmed with a lot of things, and I noticed that my refrigerator was kind of reflecting <laughs> reflecting my you know mental like state and so i was cleaning it out and i was taking my jars and i was just trying to be super resourceful and a lot of times i i don't even notice it but being resourceful makes me feel Refreshed, Like, it makes me feel at ease. And so that was really what I did with that project. I just took old jars from my fridge, and I I made—I, like, took a lot of um, wilted greens, like, things that were about to go bad um, that I would typically throw out, and I just blended them into salad dressings. I don't know. It was just a fun project to help people think about ways that they can blend up things in their fridge and, and, and repurpose
3: it. Uh, okay, Unicorn Ice Cream Sandwiches— uh, yeah, are, are we done with unicorn now? I mean, wh- where did unicorn come from? It sort of took over the internet and in food. I
2: think and, uh... it was a, a a social media thing. Yeah, I yeah. think that people. I said that it was because people wanted to escape from the, the reality, <laughs> and oh. so um, that recipe it was like basically a semi-fredo, but then I used aquafaba instead of egg white, and aquafaba is just the brine um, that you could get from um, like legumes, like um, like chickpeas is like a, um, a pretty common can that you could right. could get it from because it's clear. And so then you just whip that up just like you would an egg white. And then you just fold it into, um, instead of heavy cream, I use coconut cream.
3: So you, your, your recipes are, it's an interesting mix. You have peaches and cream cake, banana s'mores, pizza. But then you have kombucha muffins, which my wife would love. Charcoal, <laughs> banana bread. So it's just a mishmash of, you know, your vegan past, your non-vegan past how would you define your baking
2: yeah I mean I think that it's just me you know like I think that it's all of the things that I've been influenced by it's not I guess expected a lot of the things aren't expected because of maybe what your idea of what a black girl would cook because I call the book that but I think that that's what makes it real, you know, like people are a mishmash of all of these things, you know, and like I think that the more that we celebrate and just stop thinking necessarily about everything being authentic, you know, and authenticity and food and just play with the techniques that you've learned or the way that you would approach it, because that's also a part of your identity, the the way that you've seen your grandma put together something that comes with you. And so then I feel like if you're just being true to that, then all of these new ideas just come up like it, it didn't feel like I was trying to be creative about it I was just having fun
3: yeah you also I noticed in your you have date and apple hand pies which look great but um, you use all whole wheat pastry flour yeah. you don't mix it with white flour does that that work out okay for the pastry you can work it and it's um it doesn't fall apart on you
2: I think it does like I mean it's it's such a delicate dough but I like it because I feel like I can work it for a while, because I I have hot hands, and I feel like sometimes I'm like really working the dough, and and I know that when I use the white flour, like it it just gets super tough. So for me, it works, but I feel like you know, depending on the temperature of your
3: hands. Well, yeah, there a, a baker's supposed to have cold hands, right?
2: I That's, know that exactly. Yeah. I know. I mean, but I know, you got I'm hot I'm hands,
3: not, and you're a baker, so
2: anybody can do it.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Just work in a cold kitchen. Jarelle, thank you so much. It was just a pleasure uh, to speak with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Jarelle Guy. Her book is called Black Girl Baking, wholesome recipes inspired by a soulful upbringing. Milstead Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen whenever you want. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be taking your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television and author of Home Cooking 101. Hi, Sarah. You ready for a new batch of questions? I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: Hi there. This is Laura from Louisville, Kentucky.
3: How are you?
6: I'm well. How about you? I think we're quite perky today. I don't know what's wrong.
3: (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) How can we help you?
5: I've been baking some of my own breads more often lately and recently threw in a handful of sunflower seeds to one of my loaves and they were roasted and salted and within 24 hours every one of the sunflower seeds had turned a bright green and so initially I thought it was mold. I thought it molded really quickly and I had refrigerated the loaf and everything and then I did a little bit of digging. And I found a couple of websites that said that might happen, but there wasn't a good reason listed or any kind of ideas for how to mitigate the greenness that happens. So I wanted to consult you all, see what you thought about that.
6: Certain foods are sensitive to changes in pH balance, and sunflowers are one of them. So when they're put into a batter that has baking powder or baking soda, both of which are alkaline, that can cause them to turn green with just a little bit of time passing. What did you have in there, baking powder or baking soda? Baking soda. Yeah, which is more alkaline than baking powder. I would just Mm -hmm. try to reduce the amount of baking powder in the recipe, if you could, and add a little bit of lemon juice, and that should help. But here's the thing. Awesome. Even though they're green, which is very hard. It's like green eggs and ham, you know, to eat something that, <laughs> that shouldn't be green, that is green. It won't hurt you. That's good to know.
3: <laughs> Easy for you to say, however.
6: <laughs> I know. I don't know if i want to eat green. <laughs> but uh, that is really what it is. It's a chemical reaction. Isn't that interesting? Good to know.
5: Do you know if, um, if the state of the sunflower seeds before matters? Like whether they're roasted or
6: salted or neither.
3: That's a very good question.
6: Well, here's the thing. I would have thought that roasted would have made a difference, you know, Mm -hmm. but apparently it didn't in your case. (laughs) No. Yeah.
3: So you could use sunflower seeds with a yeast bread. Yes. It's just when you have a a chemical oven. Yeah,
6: because you have baking soda. So it's the alkaline and the soda part of it that makes them turn color.
3: Just change the name of the bread to green something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what I do. Green sunflower. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, reposition. <laughs> don't apologize. Never, well, Julia said. <laughs> never never apologize, apologize.
6: Never explain. Just present it as that's the way it was supposed to be. It's
3: amazing green sunflower. Have,
6: have these bright green
3: muffins. Why not? It's like pistachio muffins. Right. All right, Laura. So it's, uh, it's a question of food chemistry. Yes.
5: All right. Thank you all so much. Thank
6: You're you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
7: Hi, uh, my name's John Riley.
6: Where are you calling from?
7: Uh, Near Albany, New York.
6: How can we help you today?
7: So I'm calling about lamb. We have a a couple of restaurants nearby that have halal lamb kebabs that are awesome. And while I like the lamb that I make at home, uh, it's never gotten quite close to what they do. And I generally put some kind of olive oil and lemon juice or rosemary something like that on um, cubes that I cut typically from a boneless leg of lamb or a leg of lamb that I bone. Uh, I've tried shoulder as well. They come out great, but they never come out as uh, tender as these kebabs. And I know they marinate them, and I'm not sure what they might use. And also, I know that it doesn't have any particular striking flavor. It certainly has, like, a rosemary in it or something like that, but you would never call it flavored of something. It just tastes uh, tastes great.
6: Do you like the texture, or do you find it more tender or just more yeah, tasty? Yeah,
7: definitely more tender. I tend to like meat that is not as tender. You know, I'd rather have flavorful than tender. My wife tends to like meat that is more tender. I think also, since it's grilled, you notice the difference in texture, you know, of the, like, charring on the outside, etc., if the inside is more tender.
3: I would guess that it may be the age of the animal, because if it's a younger animal, it's probably going to be more tender than if it's an older animal. The shoulder is not going to work because you need to cook that low and slow like in a stew. So you need the equivalent of a loin cut. Which um, is very expensive. But it would have to be a loin cut for a quick cooking kebab, because you can't use leg and you can't use shoulder, right?
7: Okay. I mean, well, you so could use
6: leg, it just would be chewier. Yeah, it's going to be chewy,
3: but he, yeah. he doesn't I, want yeah, Which is
7: what I've been doing, yeah. uh, just because right. it's an easier cut to find and less expensive, obviously.
6: I have another thought, which is salt.
7: Uh, yeah, I mean, I've always put some salt But right before it, you cooked it. Um, just before I cook it. Why
6: don't you try salting it ahead of time? Yeah. Tossing it with all those other things, and then, sure. you know, pat it dry or just re-oil it and... So right. it gets a nice sear. I bet you the salt would make a difference.
3: Okay. Yeah, well, I, I would ask them, just ask them about the, what cut it is and the age of Where they of the get lamb, their lamb, yeah. Get. In
7: the um, search for this, I did buy, like, a leg that a halal butcher sawed off a lamb for me. Oh. But uh, that, <laughs> that didn't really help. Uh, and that was a young lamb, but it was young enough that it was, um, you know, hard to work around hmm. the leg getting... Enough the meat off off it, so. yeah,
3: yeah. Legs tricky, yeah. I mean, I, the salting for two hours on a rack is a good idea. I think so. Yeah, yeah. All right, okay. 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 Give it a shot. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, John. Take care. Bye now. This is Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you want to know what to do with shrimp heads or oxtails, please give us a ring anytime eight five five four two six nine eight four three. One more time eight five five four two six nine eight four three. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
8: This is Nick Jedlow.
3: Hi, Nick. How can we help you?
8: Well, I've spent years failing to recreate the dishes that I ate in India, generally due to lack of the authentic ingredients in North America. Specifically, I'm having issues with the Asian pink onions that are in the recipe. They're smaller, slightly sweeter, and, of course, pinker. The North American yellow onions, but they don't discolor like red onions do after long cooking, and they're far less sweet than Vidalia's or Walla Walla's. So with onion-forward wet curries like a dough piazza or even something that's in the background like a butter chicken, you end up with a gray curry if you attempt to use red onions or a coinly sweet curry if you go with Walla Walla's or something like that or just something that's far too sharp and usually with just too many onions if you're using a standard larger American yellow onion.
3: Let me ask a question. Yellow onions are sharp when they're raw, but in Mm -hmm. our testing at Milk Street, we find they actually turn sweet. Do you find it's just the amount of onion, or do you find the yellow onions are still too overpowering when cooked?
8: Uh, You know what? It's a bit of both. But you just end up with a completely different volume of onion
3: solid. I know what Sarah's gonna say, so.
6: Go yeah, ahead. he knows what I'm gonna say. Well, <laughs> how about shallots? Because, you know, they are sweeter than a yellow onion, but not
3: cloyingly sweet.
8: I, you know, we tried the shallots, it's just not the same. same. The flavor is very different.
3: I mean, if your big complaint is volume, I would think just a yellow onion and just use less is the simplest thing. I would think getting the spices right and using whole spices and toasting them and doing all the things you should do will make much more difference than whether using yellow or the pink onion, right? I mean, that's really the crux of it, hopefully.
6: Nick, do you agree with that assessment?
3: I would agree with
8: that. And, you know, the sort of sidebar here is also the total lack of availability of genuine Kashmiri chili, which ends up being introduced into many of those wet curries where you need that vivid Mm -hmm. red color and everyone tries to approximate it with a kind of paprika
3: blend. That's what you find no, out No, yeah, too. that doesn't make sense.
6: You are one serious cook. I want to come to your house. Wow. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we do our own curing and smoking.
8: We do our own fermenting. I'm um, building a salami
3: cave, actually, out of a... Salami
6: cave? <laughs> okay, here. That's, that's a first. That's frightening. That's a little I, scary. I
3: visited salami caves. I had never met someone who built their own. Yes. That's pretty cool. Wow. I am super impressed.
6: Yeah, now yeah. we're in awe, and we've not helped you at all. But yeah. thank you so much for <laughs>
8: calling. All, all, all
3: we said was use less yellow onion. Yeah. That was our brilliant addition to <laughs> culinary dilemma.
8: Well, you know what? I appreciate the
3: help. Thanks so yeah, much. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you really Nick. appreciate your help. Yeah, guys a blast. Have a really good day, guys. Okay, you too. All right, bye bye. Bye. Now that's that should be on my bucket list: build salami cave. Right. I mean, really. just the name, just you know. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my interview with chef and food activist Alice Waters, right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street.
9: Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and... Realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip, and I'm like, man, this beer's good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do.
6: My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved
5: fennel.
7: My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite.
6: The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection.
0: My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about muscles with beer especially the white,
10: that is just so good.
7: I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile.
6: I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice.
7: Pairing allagash white with carrot cake is a thing of beauty.
6: This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni
5: pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice, warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just... Like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this
6: beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter.
9: I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White.
7: <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook. I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it.
6: A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime. That could be the beer. We are very food minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is
0: Yeah, that's really good.
9: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home too. Head to allagash.com/locator to find Allagash White near you.
6: For 21 plus only. Please drink responsibly.
5: Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
3: This is Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. In 1971, Alice Waters opened Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California, with an overload of enthusiasm and charm, but maybe without a lot of day-to-day restaurant experience. But over time, Chez Panisse prospered, the kitchen earned its chops, and Alice went on to social activism, including the Edible Schoolyard Project. In her memoir, Coming to My Senses, Waters explains what shaped her view that food can be an instrument of social change. Let's go back to the beginning. So you're young. You grow up in New Jersey, and you say, I get dressed—it was so cold in the house in the winter. I get dressed down in the basement by the furnace where my father was shoveling coal. That is almost Dickens quality. Um, (laughs) You so you actually had a coal furnace, and you'd get dressed right next to the coal furnace on a cold winter morning?
4: Well— I did, because he had to stoke the furnace to get the heat coming through the radiators. And uh, that's that happened every morning. And my sister and I were sleeping way upstairs in the attic part of the house. And so uh, it was cold.
3: Um, my favorite story, though, which I will repeat on radio since you wrote about it, was at the Montessori school, and you had a you had a child who who bit a lot, who was a biter, and you decided because when you I, th- I think with your sister when you fought her, uh, you used to bite back, and you actually bit him back, and I just thought that was I just I don't know why I guess it's not funny, but the idea of Alice Waters in the Montessori school biting back a child who's a biter, just, I don't know, it just struck me somehow. So exactly what happened?
4: It it happened very impulsively. I wasn't used to being around really young children and I certainly hadn't been around any that were misbehaving and I didn't know what to do. And I was about 26 years old, and I, I had learned the Montessori method, and I tried to, to interest him in, you know, little projects, and, and he just wouldn't stop. And I just, when he hurt another child, I just grabbed his arm. I, I didn't bite him hard, but, but I was ashamed that I did that. And um, I thought that I was I was being let go from the school because of that incident. But in fact, it was instead because I was wearing a rather risque blouse, <laughs> a see-through blouse.
3: <laughs> and then you went on to other things. So let's talk about your parents. You said— um, It was a wonderful thing you wrote about your mother before she died. You said, speaking to you, you lived the life I wanted to live. So what what did that mean?
4: Well, she was a communist. (laughs) Um, And um, she just felt very strongly about how much money people should make and and sort of really was... um, thinking about about uh, distributing things equally among everyone. And I think she saw me taking those ideas. I had also learned them during the free speech movement in Berkeley in the 60s. And she was, instead of other parents, other parents were afraid of their kids being <laughs> involved in those demonstrations. And my mother was so proud of me. You know, that I would stand up and say when something was wrong and uh, immoral. And so when she died, she, she whispered that to me, that I, that I lived the life that she wanted to live.
3: What a wonderful thing to say to your daughter.
4: Well, it brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> you
3: talk about beauty, which I thought was interesting. You said, we have no idea what it means anymore. And then you said something I really caught my attention. You said, we've been made to feel that beauty is expensive. Well, you want to just talk about that?
4: I would love to talk about that because we uh, uh, have a number of principles of edible education at the Edible Schoolyard Project. And one of them is beauty is a language of care. And I think that when you... You put a bouquet of flowers on the table in a school that children just know something intuitively. They know that they're cared about.
3: And, and you don't have to be rich to have beauty, your point.
4: No, you just can light a candle and it changes the whole atmosphere of the room. Mm.
3: You had a, a wonderful story about Bill Clinton. I mean, you, one of your, your <laughs> themes is you can change people through taste, you know, which I think is you, you believe in transformation and the ability of taste and food and cooking to change people. So your your dream was Bill Clinton would come into the restaurant and you'd <laughs> serve him the perfect peach, and that would change Bill Clinton somehow. And so we actually <laughs> did show up at one time, and what happened?
4: Well, very sadly, it wasn't peach season. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but I had always imagined, because he's from the South, that if I could find a Masamoto peach for him at just the perfect moment, that I could do this whole peach dinner and he would he would go away thinking about life differently.
3: Have you ever been able to transform someone through taste, experience, food?
4: Well, that's what's happening at the Edible Schoolyard Project. But I have to say, it's, it is more than taste. They are also opening up all of their senses. They're smelling things. They are touching things as part of their math class when they're planting the seeds. It's the whole experience of doing it yourself and empowering yourself uh, around food that changes them, I think, forever.
3: Okay, now we're going to change topics briefly. So while you were growing up, college and after, you were thrown out of your fraternity on morals charges, which was drinking, I think, which really shocked <laughs> me. And then and then you told the story about living in Berkeley and someone broke in and tried to rape you and you actually just propelled yourself out the window uh to escape and uh that that must have been a this is what in the mid 70s?
4: Yes, late 70s. It was. And I didn't know that I had that in me. And yet when the when that happened, I was willing to scream and jump out a window. So
3: uh, it said a lot about you,
4: right? Well, it it kind of empowered me in a way that I didn't expect that I'm I guess I'm willing to take a risk. And that's that was very important to me to know that about myself at an early age.
3: Um could you read for me you you Quote, Ode to Autumn is one of your favorite poems. I believe it's in your book on some page or other. Um, Maybe you could just read the last part of it to swell the gourd. I just thought it was uh, wonderful. Uh, And just tell us about why you put that in the book.
4: I put it in the book because it was such a sensual, food-oriented poem that he wrote. And uh, I love the season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. (laughs) Close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run. To bend with apples that mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core. To swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells With a sweet kernel To set budding more and still more Later flowers for the bees Until they think warm days will never cease For summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells
3: <laughs> Wow. Is that, is that Keats who wrote that?
4: Keats, Keats. Okay. yeah.
3: Um, let's talk about food. Your favorite recipe is mint tea. I think actually, when, <laughs> when I saw you last time, you made me mint tea. But so explain that, please.
4: Well, uh, it's my favorite recipe because it only has two ingredients: <laughs> mint and water, boiling water. And I I just love a recipe like that, that <laughs> you're you're surprised that. That's all it is. But if you have the best tomato, a little salt, a little olive oil, that's it.
3: Your book really, the, the theme that comes through for me is that your restaurant and your your career and your life, going back to your mother, you said I was running a counterculture restaurant, you know, a salon, really. And, and so you're always fighting against the culture or parts of the culture you currently would describe as fast food or, uh, as you said, we're leaving our land behind, we're forgetting about our children. So you, your restaurant is really a an expression of your view of the world today.
4: I think you have said it well. Indeed, it is. Or I hope it is. And I hope that people that come feel that when they're there, that they feel the hospitality, the openness of the restaurant, the determination that we have around how we purchase our food. We put the names of the farmers on the menu. We've done that for years and years and years. And people come and say, are, you know, are Masamoto's peaches there yet? (laughs) You know, and it's, it helps to make the, those connections for people that that the taste comes from the people who take care of the land.
3: Alice, thank you so much for your time.
4: Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you.
3: That was Alice Waters. Her memoir is called "Coming to My Senses: The Making of a Counterculture Cook." I first met Alice at Chez Panisse back in the 1980s. She was sitting at a table shelling peas, and she didn't look like the typical restaurant chef. Two decades later, I returned to Chez Panisse for dinner, and was really struck by the food. The essence of each ingredient was preserved and, of course, naturally presented, and by the fact that Alice had persevered. She'd shown up, if you will, when so many other food celebrities had gone on to other restaurants and other careers. And that got me thinking about the good life. Perhaps it's simple enough. Find out what you like to do and just keep doing it. Or you might say it's really the mileage that matters as long as you keep driving in a straight line. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with editorial director J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, pasta con fagioli. Jim, how are you? I'm doing great. It's pasta and bean day here at Milk Street. It is. Pasta con fagioli, or as a lot of people say, fagioli here in America. (laughs) But look, this recipe is done hundreds of times. I've done it many times. You've done it. But you went to Italy to see if there was something new or something old that we don't know here.
1: Yeah, you know, it is such a simple dish. And I guess that's what attracted me to it because they're such simple ingredients, but they have an amazing amount of flavor and, and aromatics that they bring to the table. And it didn't hurt that I learned it at this crazy winery that used to be owned by the mafia. Apparently, the government took it away from the mafia and gave it to a retired stolen art inspector to run in the meantime. Of course. Of course, because it's Sicily. And as it turns out, his personal chef was willing to teach me basic, rustic Sicilian cooking. And this was one of the dishes she taught me. The minute I walked into her kitchen, I was just blown away by the rich aromas of fennel and rosemary and garlic. And it turns out that what she had done is throw some borlotti beans into a pot that had been soaked overnight, threw in some wild fennel that she grabbed from the driveway of the winery, a ton of rosemary and garlic, cooked them away, And when the beans were done, tossed in some pasta, stirred it all together, and it was outrageously good. For such a simple collection of ingredients to have such an amazing flavor profile, there were layers of richness and creaminess, and yet there was no dairy in it.
3: So why is this different than the 89 versions that we've (laughs) all been through over the last
1: 30 (laughs) years? I think the problem with most versions is that the focus is on the beans. Here, the beans are kind of like a starchy counterpunch to the rich fennel, the rich rosemary, and the garlic. I mean, those are really the dominant flavors that you're getting. And they're married in this kind of like starchy liquid from the beans and from the pasta itself. And so the result is really rich and creamy and aromatic. And again, for such a simple group of ingredients, it just has an amazing impact on the plate.
3: So I assume when we got back here, did you make any alterations to that recipe?
1: We did. We made a couple. First of all, we simplified it for weeknight ease. We used canned beans, and we were very happy with the results, because in part, the canned beans have that starchy water you need to get the creamy sauce that we were looking for. The other thing we did was we found it was a little heavy, and we wanted to lighten it up a bit. And I had eaten the dish a second time elsewhere in Sicily, and that time the woman making it added some tomatoes, which we liked. So we borrowed that to kind of bring a little bit of acidity to it. And finally, we felt that a little bit of lemon juice and lemon zest also helped tie everything together and brighten it. And it also really played well with the rosemary.
3: So pasta con fajol, as I like to say. <laughs> um, you know, a basic recipe, but now authentic and uh, much more interesting.
1: Yes. And also not very difficult. No, it's very simple. Jam, thank you. Thank you. You can find this recipe and all of our recipes at 177milkstreet.com.
3: I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman performs an on-air experiment demonstrating how sound affects taste. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits, They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats, but for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Hold
2: up.
5: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Malt, and I will be taking more of your calls. You ready, Sarah? You bet. Welcome to Milk
6: Street. Who's calling?
11: Hi, this is uh, Jace Grimm.
6: Hi, where are you calling from?
11: Rochester, Minnesota.
6: How can we help you?
11: So I started a donut shop recently with a buddy of mine, and we are experimenting with different glazes for the uh, donuts. And I'm having a problem with a lot of them crystallizing after I've glazed the donuts and sort of getting brittle and falling off. And I was wondering if you had any tips on how to prevent that.
6: What is in your glaze?
11: Well, it usually starts with a syrup base, either like fruit puree with sugar or maple syrup or honey. And then I'll whisk in a confectioner's sugar. And I've recently started adding uh, fats such as butter or white chocolate or shortening and also a corn syrup product. And that tends to help with the, uh, the crystallization, but it still sort of happens on some of them. And I think it may have to do with reheating them or like they dry out in the fridge. I'm just not sure.
3: I was going to say corn syrup. That was my answer. So yeah, corn syrup thanks for a me, lot. too. <laughs> yeah. I've got nothing left to say. But what percentage of sugar is the corn syrup?
11: Usually 5 to 10% yeah. of the powdered sugar. Same with the shortening or fat. I'm shooting for around 5 to 10%. And that seems to help. But after heating and cooling, maybe that's causing the crystallization or... You know, the other things I could think of is, like, the donuts being too hot or the glaze being too hot when it goes onto the donut.
6: What do you do? Do you take the donuts out and glaze them right away or you let them
11: cool a little bit? I usually let them cool, like, up to an hour or so um, before I get to them. And then the glaze, I'm trying to get as close to just warm as possible.
3: In the industry, when you research before you open the shop, did they say to glaze the donuts that they're at a certain temperature?
11: Cool is what I've been reading and seen from other industry folks. I'm a savory chef by trade, so this is sort of new to me, the whole confection side of things.
3: I would think that if they cooled, then you might have a more stable adherence between the glaze and the donut. Because if it's cooling, Mm -hmm. there's steam coming off. I don't know. I would try perfectly cool donuts and see if that helps you know let me just
6: throw out Mm -hmm. something else um you know when i've glazed donuts just at home you know with a simple glaze of powdered sugar milk vanilla usually i've been advised to let them cool very slightly and to put the glaze on while they're warm you know maybe try them very cold uh, because you've got a heated glaze the glaze i do is not heated Mm -hmm. Or try them right when they, you know, like four minutes, five minutes out of the oven.
3: Have you found that it depends on the humidity of the day or the temperature outside, or is it just? Yeah,
11: you know what? Absolutely.
3: So, can I come to your shop and get a discount on the ones with a messy glaze? <laughs> so, do you, do you, I mean, maybe. maybe Are that's you a, a donut thing.
11: guy? Well, no, maybe it's a sticky finger discount. <laughs> yeah, oh, ma- sticky
3: finger. But maybe discount. that's a... just know. turn it into a marketing plus.
11: Yeah, yeah, yeah that's not a bad idea. <laughs>
3: no, I, I would try different temperatures and I would play with a percentage of corn syrup. Mm-hmm. Just double it and see. If that makes a difference?
11: Yeah, I haven't done anything that high yet. Yeah, we
3: just double it and see if that solves the problem because that would be an easy fix. Absolutely. I want a donut. Yeah, Jace, you did a good job there making yeah. us hungry. Well, good luck with that. Appreciate sounds great. That. Yeah.
11: I love you guys' show, and it's, it's great to talk to you guys. Thank yeah. you.
6: Thank you. All right, you.
3: take care.
11: All right, bye-bye.
6: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line?
11: Hi, this is Sue Lapowitz.
6: How can we
10: help you? Uh, so I guess about a year ago... I read the uh, Julie Sani, who wrote that seminal book on Indian cooking, her description of how to caramelize onions. And it's different than the way I learned how to caramelize onions, which is to sweat the onions almost as soon as they get into the pan with salt. Sani doesn't mention putting in salt until, like, the very end. And ever since then, I've tried it both ways, and I have basically not been able to caramelize onions since.
6: You mean that whole thing derailed you so your onions don't caramelize anymore?
10: I got psyched. I don't
6: know. Oh, dear.
3: I think we need a psychoanalyst. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a psychological problem. This is, this is a not crisis. a cooking problem. This is
6: yeah. <laughs> uh, Chris, what do you think?
3: I just did it last night. I caramelized onions. I did it low and slow in a Dutch oven. I salted at the beginning, stirred them every seven or eight minutes. It was fine. Let me ask you, how are you doing it? Let's start with that.
10: Well, I guess I keep it on a medium-high and no
3: salt. No, no. You want to keep it on low and do it low and slow. In some places, they just fry onions. You know, you put them in a skillet with a bunch of oil, and that takes about 10 Mm -hmm. minutes. But if you want caramelized, it's low and slow. I mean, French onion soup is a study in caramelized onions. You caramelize, you know, a bunch of onions for 45 minutes, deglaze with white wine. You keep doing that four or five times, and then you get a dark, rich soup, same concept, but it's always low and slow, right, Sarah?
6: Always low and slow, because the thing about onions is that the same thing that makes our eyes water, these sulfurous Mm -hmm. compounds, is the same thing that when cooked low and slow gives great depth of flavor. But if you try to cook those onions really fast, they'll sort of taste like watery onions with a crust on the outside. You won't develop that wonderful depth of flavor. I don't think salt is the issue. I always season at the beginning.
10: I have a second question about salt. Okay so I'm also in a debate with my mother who's a kosher cook and we're talking about when to salt meat and she thinks that we shouldn't salt too much beforehand because of the way that kosher meat is processed and that it is already imbued with so much salt already but I think that regardless I think I should add I don't know do you guys know about that with because like she thinks that the kosher chickens have already been brined.
6: They have.
3: They have.
10: Yeah.
3: Okay. Well, they're cool. not brined, but they've been coated in salt. Yeah.
6: I wouldn't brine a kosher chicken no. because it would be too okay. salty. So no, I agree. no, but but you
3: could salt the exterior before yeah,
6: roasting, just to get a crispy, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. that salty skin. But yeah, I wouldn't. No, pre salt. You know, a kosher
3: bird does not need to be brined because it essentially it is already. Yeah. You
6: know. So we agree with your mom cool. on that one.
3: Right. Yeah. Cool. 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 She'll
6: be glad to hear that. Alrighty, our work is done. You yeah, can we, sleep well tonight. Yeah, we go home
3: and have a cocktail. It's great. Great.
10: That's great.
3: Thanks for calling.
10: Thank you. Bye now.
3: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Most commercial grenadines today are toothachingly sweet. They're also fluorescent red, made from corn syrup and artificial colors and flavors. But at London's retro modern Dandelion Bar on the Thames, we discovered a refreshing update of grenadine. A cocktail mixer traditionally made of pomegranate juice and sugar. At Dandelion, they simmer elderberry, sour cherry, and pomegranate juices into a syrup spiked with cumin for a pretty sophisticated sweetener. We created a simpler but equally delicious grenadine, and here's our recipe. Simmer one cup of pomegranate juice, one cup of sour cherry juice with six tablespoons white sugar, one and a half tablespoons coriander seeds, one teaspoon fennel seeds, and one quarter teaspoon kosher salt. Cook, stirring occasionally until reduced to about a cup, strain and cool, and then refrigerate for up to a month. You can find this recipe at MilkStreetRadio.com. Next up, Dan Pashman of The Sporkful on his latest culinary obsession.
0: Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. We're going to do a little audio experiment right now. Step into my lab, if you will. Okay. I want you to put your listening ears on. I have two different potato chips in front of me right now. Chip A and chip B. (laughs) Okay. And I want you to tell me, based solely on the sound of the crunch, which chip is fresher, crisper, better? Okay. Okay? I'm ready. Here comes chip A. Yeah, okay. And now, chip B.
3: Well, I would say B is clearly crunchier.
0: And a better chip, fresher, too, right? Uh, from a distance, yes. I, I would say that's true, yeah. What if I were to tell you that those two chips were identical? Oh, no, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> No, one was
3: definitely louder, man.
0: Well, I was playing tricks with you, Chris, but it was not by getting closer or farther from the microphone. My friend Jared here on the soundboard brought down the volume for the first chip and put uh, up the volume for the second chip. Okay. But we just replicated a famous experiment. An experiment by a researcher named Charles Spence in the UK who did this experiment by having people eat chips. All the chips were identical. They were Pringles. And he had people eat the chips in front of a microphone while wearing headphones attached to the microphone. And he adjusted the volume so some chips sounded louder than others. And what he found is that these sounds that foods make when we bite into them— affect how we perceive that they taste
3: oh i think that's true well of course heston blumenthal you know the famous chef in england you can actually put earbuds in and listen to the sounds of the sea as you're having a seafood multi-course extravaganza
0: right right yeah, yeah he, he gave you an ipod at your table you would listen to right. the sounds of the ocean while eating your seafood and people perceive that it would be fresher uh yeah it, it obviously has strong emotional sound has has a lot of effect on your emotions and your perception yeah and, and actually, the research shows that that association of crunch even extends to the bag. Hmm. The connection is not as strong with the packaging as it is with the food itself, but there is still a demonstrable connection that when the package is noisier, we perceive the chips themselves to be noisier and fresher and cr- crispier, crunchier.
3: Okay, that, that's new. No, I didn't know that. But it makes sense now you mentioned it, yeah. Like, so are there anything other than potato chips where the packaging has a, a sound uh,
0: association? Well, the other thing that I'm fascinated by is not just the sounds that foods make when we eat them, but the sounds that are made in the cooking process and what we can learn from those sounds. Mm. So, I mean, look, I think the best, most obvious example is sizzle. Right. When you put a piece of meat into a hot pan or onto a grill, there should be a sizzle. That tells you that the Maillard reaction is taking place, the Browning reaction. If it doesn't make that sound, you're in trouble. That's true. And I learned recently that there's something you can learn about scallions— you can tell whether or not you're slicing them correctly based on the sound. Really? Oftentimes, I feel like in the movies or on TV shows, you see people chopping scallions, and they're doing very quick up and down. And you hear that, that sound of the hard, the right. knife hitting the cutting board. Chop, 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 chop. And that's wrong. And that's wrong. Right. Why? Because when you prepare
3: vegetables like scallions, you're supposed to slice through them to get a nice, clean slice. If you whack them upside down, you bruise them, and you don't get a clean cut.
0: That's right. And, w- and when you when you press down too hard on them, you're, you're releasing the more acidic components of the onion as opposed to a clean cut, right. which keeps those cells sealed and allows over time the sweetness to come through. So I have some audio samples for you here. You ready? Yeah, go ahead. Here, here's the first clip. This is that chopping. This is the incorrect way to slice scallions. So you hear that hard chopping, that vertical motion. Now let's listen to the correct way to slice scallions. This is a more horizontal, slow, smooth slicing instead of a chopping. So you, you hear that, Chris?
3: I, I do, and that's the the notion of chopping is really a misnomer in the, in the kitchen because you rarely actually chop. You, you should be slicing most of the time. That's
0: right. I, I agree. That's
3: good. So we've gone from potato chips to scallions.
0: And the point is that you can learn a lot by your food based on the sounds that they make. There are so many cues when we eat and when we cook. And, and I think a lot of folks out there, like you, you may be subconsciously already aware of these sounds. Like when you're waiting for water to boil before you put your pasta in. Sometimes you could be in the next room and you hear that sound of the water bubbling, and that's how you know it's time to throw the pasta in. There's a lot of audio cues. We don't think of food and cooking as an audio experience, but in many ways it is.
3: Dan Pashman, thank you so much. Sound and food, uh, the new frontier. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman of the Sporkful Podcast. This week I interviewed Jarelle Guy, author of Black Girl Baking. You know, her Instagram account is gorgeous and also popular. It's no secret that social media is powered by individuals and not corporations. Sure, only large corporations can drill for oil or build skyscrapers, but Elon Musk is an individual, and of course he started Tesla, a car company. Apple was a backyard garage startup. So maybe the American dream is finally coming true. A better mousetrap is really the key to success. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can download the podcast on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. That way you'll get every episode downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about us at Milk Street, head on over to 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe, watch the new season of our TV show, subscribe to our magazine, or order our new book, Milk Street Tuesday Night. And if you never want to miss a new recipe or video, please follow us on social... Find us on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. And on Facebook, we're Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks for listening.
4: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street, in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzaba. Associate producer Jackie Nowak and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.